Hello, I am Bob Bostock. You are listening to Discover DEP, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection's official podcast. Each week, we will provide you with timely information about how DEP protects and preserves New Jersey's air, water, land, and natural and historic resources. Please feel free to add this podcast to your iTunes or RSS feed. You can also follow DEP on the web at nj.gov DEP. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to another edition of Discover DEP. You can download Discover DEP and subscribe to future editions through iTunes and Google Play. Today we are joined by Brian Zarati, Senior Zoologist in the Division of Fish and Wildlife's Endangered and Non-Game Species Program. We often hear about the hibernation of bears, but we rarely hear about how other animals cope with the cold winter months, especially cold-blooded animals. They have to handle the change of seasons differently than warm-blooded animals do. Brian is here today to talk about reptiles and amphibians in winter here in New Jersey. We've had some wonderful spring weather lately, but winter is not yet over. So as our reptiles and amphibians are probably starting to think about coming out of hibernation, tell us a little bit about reptiles and amphibians in New Jersey and give us all a little primer because for some of it, it's been a long time since we had high school biology. Sure. And may not be totally up to speed on the difference between reptiles and amphibians and what makes a reptile and what makes an amphibian. Right, yeah. Thank you very much for having me to talk about this. Perfect timing because with the warm weather, some of the animals have started to emerge a little bit earlier than most biologists are ready for. So this is a good time to talk about some of these things as we move into this next phase. I'll start off by, and I had to write this down so I remember all the numbers. New Jersey has 73 different reptile and amphibian species, which include three non-native ones, three animals that have otherwise learned to persist here but didn't originate you know, from New Jersey. They were introduced or otherwise considered non-native. But the, the major differences between reptiles and amphibians, how they breathe, how they reproduce, how long they may live. So you think about reptiles, they have claws, sometimes sharp teeth rough, hard skin. Amphibians, typically, you know, thinner skin. They need moisture. They typically have a moist kind of tacky skin sometimes. In terms of, you know, how long they live, you have some animals in New Jersey, turtles in particular, that may live to be 100 years. 50 years is a, is a good solid number for some of the, the longer-lived species. But when you're talking about amphibians, they may only live 5 or 10 years, so they, all, they have a much shorter lifespan. Examples, you have snakes, turtles, lizards, they all kind of fall into that reptile camp, and frogs, salamanders fall into the amphibian side of things. And reptiles and amphibians are both cold-blooded, which, if I remember correctly, means that they're unable to really regulate their own body temperature like warm-blooded animals are. They pretty much are reflecting what the temperature is in the external environment. Right. So us as mammals, humans, our body generates heat and that kind of allows us to survive in a variety of different conditions. But reptiles and amphibians get kind of couched into, you know, what we call cold-blooded or ectotherms or poikilotherms, which means that they have to use the environment's heat to regulate their own body temperatures. And so that's why you'll, you'll see animals like a turtle up basking on a log to kind of take in that sun's heat to help them kind of get their day started and and then when they become too warm they'll they'll move off into a shadier spot 
to help kind of regulate that body temperature. So winter must pose a particular challenge for our cold-blooded animals here in New Jersey because it can get rather cold, and I suspect too cold to be able to sustain life. So how do they deal, how do the reptiles and the amphibians deal with the cold? Right, so as we approach the, the fall months, the vast majority of our reptiles and amphibians say, okay, this is too cold for me. I'm going to go dormant for some period of time until spring comes around when I'll warm up again. And it's a, it's a great survival strategy because it allows reptiles and amphibians to exist in places they otherwise wouldn't be able to if they had to sustain themselves year-round. So they'll do things like amphibians, frogs. They may go down to the bottom of a pond underwater, bury into, into muck. Snakes may go back into the, the fissure of a rock and be kind of denning communally with, with different species. And... What they're, what they're kind of each doing back there is really kind of just shutting down their body. So their metabolic rate slows down very much. They don't need to intake as much oxygen as they would if they were active. And they can handle all of those things through kind of evolutionary adaptations that are specific to reptiles and amphibians. So breathing, you know, breathing air, oxygen through their skin, releasing carbon dioxide that may get built up, you know, it, that gets built up in their bodies, releasing that through their, through their skin or through their bodies. And that brumation that they go through, which could be anywhere from October all the way through, through March, just allows them to not have to eat, have to think about doing anything other than surviving those cold months until it warms up and they can go back to business. I should point out that there's a couple of interesting species in New Jersey that tolerate the cold in some interesting ways. Eastern tiger salamanders, they're one of our state endangered species. They'll actually go from where they're living in the uplands and move towards their breeding ponds in December. And you'll see them in these ice-covered breeding ponds anywhere from early December, sometimes all the way through the middle of February. So as biologists looking at these animals, you're coming up to this temporary pond covered in ice, you're wearing all this expensive gear to keep you warm, even though we have bodies that allow us to keep us warm to a degree. And there's some amphibious amphibious salamanders swimming around in the water. So there, there are some of the species that are pretty cold tolerant and take advantage of those months when there's not, not a lot of competi- you know, competition and pressure to, to do their breeding. So they are a little bit harder than we give them credit for sometimes. What's the normal habitat of the reptiles and amphibians in New Jersey? Are they spread across the state, or are there certain areas where certain of the animals are found, or where do they live? New Jersey is a fantastic place if you're interested in reptiles and amphibians because we have so many unique habitat types. The Pine Barrens in the southern part of the state, the section of the Appalachian Mountains, the, the, the Highlands Valleys in the northern part of the state. And there, there really isn't a spot in New Jersey, whether you're talking about the coastal waters, the brackish waters, freshwater, wetlands, uplands, where you can't have one species or, or another. So there, there literally isn't a habitat in New Jersey where you don't have one amphibian reptile or, or another that's able to live. So you may have sea turtles. We have five species of sea turtle that routinely move along our border or sometimes come into our bays. Diamondback terrapins, you'll see at that interface between the, the, the the seawater and the freshwater, that brackish water, uh, Delaware uh, Raritan Bay, for example. You'll have the sandy soils of the Pine Barrens feature all different species of reptile and amphibian like the eastern king snake, the corn snake, Pine Barrens tree frog. 
where southern New Jersey, those pine barrens, is literally the farthest north they come along the Atlantic coast. So New Jersey's habitat kind of allows them to reach up to a really high latitude compared to you know their, their brothers and sisters that are living much farther you know, southern, south along the coast. And then in the northern part of the state, you have things like the bog turtle, state endangered species, federally threatened, or the wood turtle, state threatened, that, that thrive in, in some of the, the wetlands and, and streams of fairly high water quality that are in parts of our state, like Worthington State Forest or, or you know, High Point and Stokes. So New Jersey is not just a great place to live for human beings. It's a pretty great place to live if you're a reptile or, or an amphibian. There's quite a bit of diversity when we think about reptiles and amphibians and what they need to do well in New Jersey. That's kind of where that interesting conflict takes place. You know, they're, they're small animals, little legs. They have a hard time moving around, but, but just like we have the need to move around to, you know, we go to the grocery store, we go travel to visit friends or family. Reptiles and amphibians have needs to move across New Jersey as well. And because New Jersey's done such a great job of making it good for, for people, that can sometimes be in conflict with the needs of reptiles and amphibians. So we have a lot of fragmentation in New Jersey, uh, a lot of roadways moving back and forth across the state. And those things in, in particular for animals that have little legs and and can't fly to new places, that can make things challenging for them. So there are places in the state where it may be very difficult for, let's say, one population of reptile or amphibian to get to another area of suitable habitat to perhaps meet up with another population of a reptile amphibian. But I understand we're doing some creative things to allow the reptiles or amphibians to cross the roads or or get to the other side of the road, I should say, without being endangered by the motor vehicle traffic. Right. And when we looked at the threats that are facing our state's endangered and threatened special concern wildlife, we found that fragmentation, bisection of habitats from one another was a really common threat amongst all those species. So I said, okay, well, we're not going to be in a situation where we're going to stop folks from traveling on roads or, Mm -hmm. or converting roads back into wildlife habitats. So how can we get those roads to be safe for animals. And so one of the techniques that a lot of folks are doing out in the western parts of the U.S., elsewhere in New England, over in Europe, is they're saying, okay, let's build wildlife-friendly passage systems. And those could be under a roadway or even over a roadway that allows us to continue to use those roads as, as we need to, but it also allows the animals to safely move up and over them to get where they want to go. And the animals can figure out where these places are, huh? We often try to target places where we would consider a project like that in an area where we have a high degree of confidence that the animals are, are really looking to use that as a corridor. And we've been doing some mapping and modeling of, of our landscape to look to see where those kind of highest value places are to do that kind of uh, retrofit. And you don't have to worry about the expensive signage right. for the animals. Right. You know, they can find them. Yeah, and, and we'll do things, um, we'll, we'll pair those wildlife underpasses, for example, with things like fencing that will help continue to prevent animal, animals from getting onto the roadway, but it also may help funnel the animals you know, to those tunnels. So it's a little bit of a, you know, a, a guiding track for them. Yeah, that's great. Now, if I were to be outside and run across a snake, for instance, right now that was in hibernation, if I were to uh, go near it or touch it, would it wake up? Would it arouse itself? Or are they in such deep states of hibernation that it probably wouldn't even know I was there? Most snakes that 
would still be overwintering right now are probably tucked away in a place where we wouldn't see them. So they may be under a bunch of leaf litter. They may be down underground in a root cavity system from a tree, or they could be back in the, in the fissures of a rock in, in places we can't see them. But there are situations where we may turn up one of those animals doing routine yard work, moving some things around, getting our gardens ready for the spring. And it takes a little bit of time for an animal to go from that kind of dormant state to fully active and, and being able to defend itself or, or run away from a, from a threat like mm. they see us as posing to them. And so they probably wouldn't do a whole, a whole bunch, much of anything. So they would just kind of lie there. <laughs> they would probably kind of lie there if it, if it were, um, say, a month ago. Now that we've had some of these warmer days, I was just out in the field doing some, some work on Friday, and there were snakes active, there were frogs active, there were salamanders active. So at this point in time, and, and with the weather that we're going to be expecting, you know, moving through the end of this month into March, we'll, we'll see animals becoming more and more active, and this will be the time of year when if we do see one and, and try to handle one, they'll probably be ready to get out of there or maybe even give us a little a little nip saying, please don't pick me up. So is there any threat to the animals that have, because of this warm spell, that have kind of come out of hibernation maybe a little early? Uh, this morning, for instance, the day we're recording, it was below freezing. Uh, when I went out to my car, I had to scrape ice off of the car. Are they at any threat now that, that we've it's gotten cold again and it might not get warm again for a couple of weeks? Or how do they deal with that? It's concerning sometimes, I think, for us as biologists to think about how amphibians in particular were, will, will deal with that. Because they're some of our first emergers. You'll have things like spotted salamanders, Jefferson salamanders, wood frogs. They start to migrate towards their breeding ponds very early in the season. In fact, a bunch of them just moved this past weekend with some of the warm weather we've been having. And so you, you think to yourself, okay, they've moved there, but now it's 20 degrees out. They've figured out a way to adapt to that over time, but you can have situations where animals may be given these false signs that, that the warm season has arrived and, and now they have a couple of cold nights, that is that is something that can lead to mortality in some situations where an animal gets trapped out. They may be basking during the daytime. You have a kind of a precipitous drop in temperature, and sometimes they can't retreat back to where they need to go in time, and so you may lose some individuals because of that. But for the most part, they've, they've figured out how to, how to roll with that. Yeah, pretty remarkable, really. I'm telling you, when you are out in a, in, a, in a road service monitoring amphibians crossing to go breed at a vernal pool and it's sleeting out and, you know, you're wearing gloves and hats and you see this, you know, this four-inch salamander, you know, walking through the leaf litter to cross the road to go to a breeding pool, you really kind of question sometimes, how much do I really need this coat when this, this little critter's out here just walking around in you know, high 30-degree temperatures? So when the weather does start to warm up and spring really comes and we go into summer, um, what techniques do the amphibians and reptiles have to avoid becoming overheated? Sure. Most of them spend some amount of time in the morning basking. You know, again, with, with their strategy of, you know, of using the, the sun to heat up their bodies, they'll need to do that so they can start their day, go out and seek food of their own, seek prey move around their, their home range. 
But you think about it, so for example, the, the bog turtle's a, a four inch long turtle and it's got you know more or less a, a uniform dark colored shell. And so that's something that's very quick to heat up. Uh, and most of the reptiles and amphibians have kind of a maximum temperature threshold where they really shouldn't go above that else for, you know, for risk of death. And so of course they know what that is mm. internally. And, and once that happens, they may do something as, as easy as jump into the nearest cold water body. Um, other times they may burrow down into a, a nice kind of cool mucky substrate or, or just move back into a patch of bushes where there's plenty of shade and, and some reprieve you know, from the heat. Um, there, are, there are times when, when we get into July and August, the, the real warm months of the year, there's some animals that we're almost kind of take a time out. They may take a, a two or three week spell where they go into a, another state of dormancy just to escape the high heat. So Eastern box turtles are known to do that. And it's a great technique for them to say, okay, it's just too hot out here. There's not enough, not enough opportunity for me to cool down. So I'll just lower my entire metabolic system and, and take a rest just like I would do in winter, but, but during some really extreme summer months. Sounds that their techniques are a lot like what we use in the summer, too. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, Go to the us, beach, lay out for a little while, gets a little too hot. Yep. Go in, get something to drink, right. come back out a little later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What role do amphibians and reptiles play in our overall ecosystem? Why is it important that we take care that the amphibians and reptiles that do make New Jersey home have sufficient habitat, that the, that we minimize the threats to their existence? I mean, one one simple answer is, you know, you think about what are the things that some of our reptiles and amphibians prey upon that, that we as people or society are, are, should be thankful for. So you have a, a snake in New Jersey called the Eastern Rat Snake. And what that name is implying is one of its sometimes preferred food sources. So homeowner may spend a lot of money trying to eradicate their home of, of mice or or other pests, vermin, uh, and snakes are sometimes doing that job for free. You'll have uh, uh, homeowners that sometimes may have a wood pile, and there's snakes in that wood pile. And you think, well, okay, well, that makes sense. There's a lot of cover there for the snake, but the snake's also there for a free lunch. You'll have snakes in those wood piles, but you also have mice in those wood piles. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes the two go hand in hand. So, so in one case, they're out there as a as a control on on things that we otherwise may not also want to see living amongst us, you know, some of those pests. Amphibians, you know, they're they're one of these species that many of the places that they use to 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 breed, to live, are habitat types that are really good indicators of overall ecosystem health. Wetlands, uh, ephemeral ponds, lakes, rivers, streams. So things that in many cases are providing us water, groundwater recharge areas. So the diversity of your reptiles and amphibians in those places is oftentimes an indicator of the health of those environments. And, you know, we have places like the Highlands supplies quite a bit of drinking water for, you know, many North Jersey residents, the Pine Barrens, big aquifer under there that supplies a lot of drinking water. And we typically find whether it's reptiles and amphibians or wildlife in general, the more diversity in wildlife typically means a, a more intact habitat. So we like to 
look at amphibians and reptiles as you know one of those baseline species that, that indicate quality of habitat. So if we're out and about in the coming days and weeks and we run across a snake or a frog or a salamander, what's the best way to handle that? Say hello. There are protections in place that uh, New Jersey DEP has to really ask citizens to, to minimize their handling of those species. You know, we can't predict what a snake or, or, or a frog or a salamander may do or not do when, when we try to handle it, but we know that we're very big and many, many of those animals are very small, and so they typically are going to see us as a threat and something that may in fact try to eat them. So what would you do if a big alien came down and tried to pick you up and do something? You'd try to run, you'd bite, you'd do anything you could to, to get away. And in many cases, that's what the wildlife is going to do. And, and snakes in particular are, are that reptile group that people oftentimes are very curious about, may pick up, handle one, and they may show that they don't want to be handled by checking out your finger. We only have two venomous species of snake in New Jersey, timber rattlesnakes and copperheads, northern copperheads. They're very secretive animals. They're very cryptic. They're not often in places where humans exist, but those are species that if you can't identify them, and even if you could, we want to, for the most part, keep a hands-off approach to, to most of our reptiles and amphibians. Yeah, so it sounds like if you run across them, the best thing to do is just kind of look at them, appreciate them for the really wondrous animals that they are, and let them go on their business. <laughs> take out take out your smartphone, get a great picture. We have 11 different endangered, threatened, special concern amphibian species. There's 15 endangered, threatened, or special concern reptile species in New Jersey. Those are species that the Endangered Non-Game Species Program wants to hear more about from the citizens and from the public. Where are they? What were they? What were they doing when you saw them? And so, starting with a, a, a photo and filling out one of our wildlife setting report forms is a great way to document the presence of, of one of those unique species, and, and it helps our program protect them and, and where they live. And we have a link to that site on the description of the podcast, so if people do find one of these animals out there and take a picture and uh, can identify where they are, they can contribute to the science that you're doing. We very much appreciate it. Excellent. Brian, how did you get involved in reptiles and amphibians? What's your background? After finishing college, I actually started as a seasonal employee with the Deer Project. And out of that same office, there was, at the time, a, a, a current endangered and non-game species biologist was working who I had met in college during a field trip. And after my hours were over with the Deer Project, I asked him if he needed any help with any of the work that he was doing. And he did. And that was in, say, March 2002. And, and I've been with... There we are 15 years later. Right. I've been with the division since. Good stuff. Well, we don't often see as we're out and about all the reptiles and amphibians that make New Jersey home. But I think it's fascinating to hear about the wide variety of these animals that we have, the way that they adapt to our climate and changing conditions, uh, both on the ground and in the climate. And to learn more about the role that they play as part of our ecosystem here in New Jersey. So, Brian, I want to thank you for taking time out to speak with us today and to impart some of your knowledge and wisdom about reptiles and amphibians to our audience. I know that I've certainly enjoyed 
this conversation, and I'm sure all our listeners will as well. So thanks very much. Yeah, you're very welcome. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for listening to Discover DEP. If you have comments on the podcast or ideas for future podcast topics, please email us at podcast at dep.nj.gov. Enjoy the rest of your day.